25 and 25 says, And a certain woman which had an issue of blood twelve years, and had suffered many things of many physicians, and spent all that she had, she had spent it all, and was nothing bettered, but rather grew worse. That's sick. That's being sick. When she had heard of Jesus, came in the press behind and touched his garment, for she said, If I may touch but his clothes, I shall be whole. Somebody say faith. And straightway the fountain of her blood was dried up, and she felt in her body that she was healed of that plague. And Jesus, immediately knowing in himself that virtue had gone out of him, turned him about in the press and said, Who touched my clothes? And his disciples said unto him, Thou seest the multitude thronging thee, and sayest thou, Who touched me? And he looked around about to see her that had done this thing. Now I want to minister to us on the net for the next few moments on just this simple subject. There you are. There you are. Turn to your neighbor, show them both molars, and tell them, there you are. Then you may be seated. Slowly she began to sink beneath the wind and the waves of the Atlantic Ocean, finally settling upon the sandy bottom 230 feet beneath the surface. No one knew where she was. Nobody knew that she was even there. Nobody expected her to be there. As a matter of fact, the last orders that had been dispatched to her had commanded her to return to the Mediterranean where she was to guard the Strait of Gibraltar. So she was being looked for 4,000 miles away from where she now lay. And for nearly 60 years she remained undiscovered, nothing more than a set of numbers on a fisherman's lore and sea depth-finding system until one day that old fisherman decided that he was going to hang up his fishing poles. I know some of you said he must not have been a real fisherman. He decided he's going to hang up the fishing poles, dry dock the boat, put up the nets. But one last thing he did found two gentlemen that had been friends of his that were pretty well known in the area as deep water divers, meaning they dove below the normal depths that the human body is capable of diving to using special nitrox mixes in their tanks, and they would go to depths of 230 feet and more. And, and so he took those numbers of them. He said, I don't know what's down there. I don't know if it's another sunken ship. I don't know if it's a pile of rocks. It could be a barge full of trash. I don't know what's there, but for years I have fished that spot and I have caught some of my best fish there. I've lost hooks. I've lost nets, but I have caught fish at this spot. And I don't know, fellas, but you guys might just like to take a dive on this. So Richie Kohler and John Chatterton put together an expedition for the next six diving seasons. They dove 230 feet into the Atlantic and began to research and began to discover the story of what was become a, a, a groundbreaking discovery. It was 
to turn the, the, the diving world upside down at the discovery because on that fateful day, they finally were able to look and say, we have found you, there you are. Because for 60 years, the U-869, a German U-boat, had laid undiscovered and undetected just a few miles off of the New Jersey coastline. One of between 40 and, 40 and 70,000 ships that lie between the, the peak of Nova Scotia and the bottom of the Florida Keys. Just another ship, another number, another spot on a map, undiscovered, unknown, undetected, until the day somebody found nothing more than a simple manufacturer's tag, traced a number, and were able to finally say, there you are. But it was more than just saying, there is the U-869, but 60 years later, moms and dads, husbands and children could now know where their son, where their dad, where their husband was. And so now there were families in Germany that could say, there they are. And I've come to let somebody know today and to encourage somebody this morning. That even though you may feel like you are lost in a crowd, even though you may feel that you are just one of maybe 150 or 175, however many are here this morning, that you're just another number, that you're just another person on a chair, that there is a God who is looking down from heaven and who in this house this morning is saying, there you are. You see, what was so startling was that the U-869 had not been sunk by another submarine. It had not been sunk by the Coast Guard dropping depth charges. It had remained undetected until on one night, having heard the thrum, the engines of a merchant vessel sailing out of New York Harbor, come to the surface, take an aim, fired its torpedo, but the torpedo, rather than picking up on the thump, thump, thump of the merchant vessel, picked up on the clatter of its own engines and turned in what is known as a circle runner, and the U-869 sank itself. It reminds me of a song we sing. I was sinking deep in sin. You see, the thing about sin is we sink ourselves. The state of my life that I found myself in, and even though I grew up in church, even though I grew up on the pew, under the pew, over the pew, you poke me and Church music comes out. I bleed Jesus. But like David, I was born in sin. And I was shapen in iniquity. 
Just as Paul said, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. It wasn't somebody else's sin that, that was a result of my sin. It was what I had done, the choices I had made, the condition and the state. I was seeking myself. This morning I've come to let somebody know that you're in a place where you may be sinking as a result of your own doing, but there is a God who can lift you up out of the depth of despair and sin, bring you back to the surface, set you on a solid rock, not just give you a devastating past, but give you a glorious future. Why? Because he's looking down saying, there you are. I marvel as I look at pictures, and I've, I've had the opportunity to travel to New York City, walk those streets, and it amazes me. It's not just, you know, it's not like walking down the street in Salem or walking down the street in Vandalia. You know, you get, you know, you might see two or three people on the sidewalk at a time. When you go to New York City and you see the masses, shoulder to shoulder, front to back, I mean, almost like soldiers walking, marching, heads down, some looking up, some looking around, and they walk many times next to the same person day in and day out, don't know who they are, couldn't pick them out of a crowd. If they disappeared, they never know it. Because when you get into those type of crowds and you get into that type of a situation, you're nothing but another face. You're lost in a crowd. You're absorbed by those around you. And, and so many times there are people that come into the house of God and, and they get absorbed into the crowd and they become another face. And, and I understand, we, we like to have large crowds and, and we like to see the church grow, but I'm grateful that we have a God no matter what size the church he knows our name. He knows who we are, where we are. And He is there for each and every one of us. That I am never lost in the crowd when Jesus is walking by. We've all been there. We've all felt like we were nothing more than a face, nothing more than a number. Nobody knew who we were. Nobody knew we were there. You know, it's one thing to feel alone in an empty room. That's easy. But I've been in times in my life where I've been in a room full of people and felt like nobody else was there. Because of the situation, the circumstance, whatever I may have been facing, dealing with, going through. And I'm smart enough to know, not some spiritual guru, but I am smart enough to know that it doesn't matter what size crowd you're in. There's somebody there who faces that and deals with that. God knows who you are. And He's here for you. But you've got to hold on to your faith. You see, it's in those moments when we feel alone, unknown, undiscovered, undetected, Everybody surrounding us, nobody there. That it's hard to hold on to faith. It's hard to be able to trust that God knows where you're at. But I get amazed when I look at the story of this woman. Twelve years. Twelve 
years she's suffering. I'm sure most, all, most of us, if not all of us, know the story. But I learned a long time ago, they told me, said, just act like nobody knows what you're talking about and tell them anyway. But for 12 years, she suffered an issue of blood. Now you sort of she suffered with an issue. We all got issues. Doesn't matter what the issue is. Some been suffering longer than others. The Bible said she'd suffered. She'd spent everything she had and hadn't gotten any better. Now I'm just going to be real honest with you. I'll pick on me. That way none of you get mad at me. I just get mad at myself and I get glad in the same shoes I got mad in. But I'll just be honest with you. If I take two aspirin and my head ain't, ain't gone in five minutes, I'm going in asking if, I'm looking at the expiration date on the bottle. Is this still good? The doctor gives me a, a bad report. And I go get a second opinion. And it's the same report. I go get a third opinion. And it's the same report. I'm usually saying, what's the use? I give up. I quit. Matter of fact, I looked up. The prayer requests were going up. I saw a name up there and cancer underneath. Let's be honest, in this day and age, I don't care what four-letter words you know, that's the dirtiest word you can ever say and you can ever hear. But I do know that I still serve a God who's able. That it doesn't matter what a doctor says, God's still able. But if a doctor walked in and he looked at me and he said, you've got cancer, what, what's my, I'll just tell you what my reason. What's the use? I'm dead. It's all over. I'm going to go home. I'm going to get my affairs in order. I'm going to make sure my family's taken care of. I'm going to try and make sure everybody that, that, that I owe money to uh, either gets paid or, or they don't know I'm dying. It'll, after a while, it'll all be over. But we get a negative report and we throw our hands up and give up and say, I'm not, I can't go on it, it's over with. And this woman hung on for 12 years. You know, the Bible says we're all given a measure of faith. I'd like that woman's measure. Because for 12 years she kept believing if I can find the next doctor, if I can find the next treatment, if I can find the next experiment, if I can find the next medication, if I can find it, if I can find it, I'm looking, I'm looking, I'm believing, I'm believing. That's all it was. I simply believe that if I can find the right doctor at the right time and the right treatment or the right medication, everything will be all right. And in the midst of all her faith, Somewhere, somehow, the Bible says she heard about Jesus. How many glad you heard about Jesus? Now, I don't know how it happened. 
I don't know, and since I'm the preacher, I'm going to tell it like I want to, like I want the story, Sam. Jesus, straighten me out when we get there. If I don't get there, we won't have to worry about it, will we? After a while, it'll all be over. I love that song. I don't know if she had gone into the doctor's office for a checkup. I don't know. But you know, like all of us do, we go to the doctor's office, and when the door opens, we all, one, we're hoping we can hear if they're calling our name, and two, there's that morbid curiosity that we're hoping that we'll hear what's wrong with them and find out that they got it worse than us. So I don't know if she was in the doctor's office and the door opens and here stands the doctor and his patient and all she hears is the doctor saying, I cannot explain this, Bartimaeus. I don't know how this happened. I can't. It was medically impossible. I've known you and treated you for years and I'm telling you, two weeks ago you were blind. What happened? I don't know if that's how she heard about Jesus. I don't know if she was in the grocery store. And you know how women can be in the grocery store. Well, let's not even go there. We're already on the way. Might as well take the trip. I don't know if she's in the grocery store, Walmart, wherever you do your shopping. She's pushing her buggy in and she sees, you know, Elizabeth coming towards her. And, you know, like, like women do. Hey, Elizabeth, how you doing? Oh, I love the robe just love that tone of white your headband your your, your covering looks so I just love it how's everything been going how's your son last I heard a few months ago he he was really sick and and there wasn't much hope for him and she looks and says you are not going to believe this I really oh you're not going to believe this I don't know if that's how it was. And, and, and Elizabeth began to tell her, my son was sick. Matter of fact, we got up one morning and he had died in his sleep. We had prepared the body. We were walking him out of the house and down the street, headed out into the hills to bury his body. And along the way, we ran into this, this man. He, he was there with a group of his friends and his name was Jesus. And he stopped the procession and he raised my boy from the dead. Now he's back at school. He's running. He's playing. He's jumping. It's as if nothing was ever wrong with him. I don't know how she heard about Jesus, but she heard about him. The only thing that matters in life is that we hear about Jesus. Nothing else matters. Nothing else will make a change. Nothing else will make a difference until we hear about Him. So I don't know how she heard about Him, but she heard about Jesus. And she made up in her mind, if I can just get to Him. If I can just get to Jesus. Somebody can hear me this morning if you are in this place. And you're wondering how to get out of the situation, the circumstances that you're in. I can promise you if you'll just get to Jesus. Forget about everything else. And just get 
to him. She didn't care what she had to do. And I grew up in Sunday school and, and they always said, you know, obviously, if she's saying, if I can just touch the hem, she didn't walk into the crowd like this, I'm getting to Jesus. She wasn't elbowing her way, but the Sunday school teachers told me she was on her hands and her knees, crawling, excuse me, pardon me, excuse me. Because it didn't matter how thick the crowd was. She said, if I can just make my way, if I have to get on my hands, and my, if I have to belly crawl to touch the hem of his garment, if I can just touch the hem. And little did she know that when she touched the H-E-M, she got a hold of the great H-I-M. And the Bible says immediately she was healed. What had oppressed her for 12 long years, what had cost her every dime she had, what had taken all of her energy in a moment had been delivered from her. All it took was one moment and one touch to make a difference. Then the Bible says, he turned around and he asks a question. Who touched me? Who touched me? And then his disciples look at him, and I can almost sense the incredulous tone in their voice. What do you mean who touched you? Look at all these people. And you, you have the... Who touched you? At least they weren't, you know, there wasn't a smart aleck among them. They said, come on, you're God. What are you asking for? I mean, aren't you supposed to know these things? It wasn't because she touched him. You know what I mean. You know, like your kid. Daddy, 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 daddy. Pulling on your pant leg. Daddy, daddy, daddy. It wasn't a, who touched me? Bible said, he said, I felt virtue. I want to know. I want to know. I felt somebody's faith. And somebody it wasn't just the crowd. It wasn't just anybody, but it was somebody who had a need. And God just felt virtue flow because they got what they needed. Can I tell you something? Don't wait for him to come to you. I'm going to pick on us now. We have this, this problem in Pentecost. Not in Salem. They have it in Pembroke, North Carolina, because that's where I saw it. We have this problem in Pentecost. I'm watching my time. They said pastor goes four hours, so I got two and a half. So. We come down to the altar, God's moving, the music's playing, everything's going good. 
and this is how we are. Where's the preacher? If he'll just lay hands on me. If Brother Gene will just, just lay hands on me. I can get what I need. Can I just say I rebuke that attitude. The people that really wanted something from God never waited for him to come to them. They went to him. I'll never forget a few years ago I was preaching Pembroke, North Carolina. I told you they had the pro this problem there. I was preaching in Pembroke for Bishop Earl Chavis. If you ever get a chance to meet Bishop Chavis, if you ever have the chance to go to Pembroke, North Carolina, and go to his church. It's worth, it's worth whatever you put in the offering and more. I've preached for him several times and no service. I mean, I don't like normal church. But I mean, when we talk about, I mean, it's like off the charts, not normal. My first service there, he comes in, he sits down at the piano. Just kind of clunk, clunking around. Well, how do we want to start service tonight? And some of you old folks remember this. How do we want to start church? And you know what? Sister so-and-so, why don't you stand and testify? And brother so-and-so, you get one ready after her. And while they're testifying, brother so-and-so, you and your wife get a song ready. And, and you know what? Uh, uh, sis down here on the front row in the youth group, you get a song ready too. And, and then we'll just see where we go from there. The next time I'm there, it started out much the same way. He only he said, he didn't say, how do we want to start tonight? He's up there clunking around. He said, there's sin in the house tonight. Some of you mad at me because of what I preached a week ago. And you know how I know? Because you haven't come by my office and shaken my hand in a week. And you call me every day. And you know who you are. You need to get down here and repent. You got five minutes or I'm calling your names. I was a guest preacher and I was kneeling, making sure I was right with God. We have this attitude that it, we get too personality driven. It's not a me thing. It's not a we thing. It's a he thing. He's the reason we're here. He's the source of all that we need. He's the only one that can make a difference. Anyway, we'd had a great service. The preacher preached a phenomenal message. I know because I, pre I preached it. Had a great altar service. I mean, people, and I'm not saying the brain, I'm saying people got touched. People were getting filled with the Holy Ghost. God was moving. Bishop gets back up to my, I've learned. When I go to his place, I never give him the mic back. We're having a good altar service. He gets the mic. People are still worshiping. God is still moving. He looks back and he says, Brother Ronnie, 
He said, you've been dealing with some things in your life for the last month and a half. He said, I'm going to tell you right now, the Holy Ghost is right over top of your head. If you just lift your hands, you'll get into it and God will touch you. He raised his hands up and God knocked him out on the floor. He began speaking in tongues. God renewed him, refilled him with the Holy Ghost. He grabbed me, he looks at me, he says, hey, take this bottle of oil. Go back there about eight rows back. He said, pointing to me, he said, the man with the cane said, he needs to be able to get up and walk. Go back and pray for him. I didn't feel put on the spot. I go back and pray for a guy for him to walk again. I do this every day. So I did what he told me. I went back, took the oil, prayed for him. The guy got up and walked. Ran, shouted, danced. Church had revival. And Jim, Bob, and Jethro standing over against the wall with their hands up. Jim, Bob praying, getting a touch from God. Jethro. Bishop comes off the platform, walks over, lays his hands on Jim Bob, begins praying for him. I don't know. That, that's the names I gave him. <laughs> Jim Bob man, gets the Holy Ghost all over again. I mean, God does a number on him. Never in my life have I seen it before. I wanted to do it a time or two since then. I'm not going to touch I'm not going to hurt you, but I'm going to. He walks over to Jethro. He walks over. I am not praying for you, Jethro. I'm not laying hands on you. You know what you need from God, and you know how to get it. You just do it yourself. Stand up here looking around. Wait for me. Come lay hands. You don't need me. You need God. And walked off. Not only was he a smart man, at least Jethro was smart enough. After about two minutes, got his hands up and got a hold of God and got what he needed from God. The point I'm trying to make is that too often we miss what we can get from God because we're so focused on whether somebody else will come pray with us or somebody else will look our direction, wave their hanky at us, blow on us, whatever it may be, whatever we think ought to happen. God's never going to do it like I want it. He's going to do it in His own way, in His own time, and it's always going to be right. So when God turns around and he says, who touched me? I don't want him saying, I'm not touching you. You know how to get a hold of me yourself. I want him to know, God, it doesn't matter what I got to do. I'm going to get a hold of you. I don't come to church by chance. I don't come to church on a whim. I purposed to come. I didn't come here just because I was preaching today. Anybody else could have been preaching. I got blessed with the pastor preaching. But I came because every time the doors are open, I learned as a child it was an opportunity for God to touch me and for me to touch Him. We didn't happen in here by accident. You weren't just driving down the road and your car just steered itself in here. You weren't, you know, walking around town one day and saying, you know what, heard, heard you know, Apostolic Church of Salem. Oh, hey, that sounds like a pretty cool name. I want to go see what apostolic means. 
Now that may have been it. Boy, did you get surprised. None of us are here by accident. We came for a purpose and for a reason. As I began to close and the musicians can come and give you hope. I mean, come on, because when I, I'm, I'm not these, one of these preachers says, as I draw to a close and 20 minutes later, I mean, like, we're, I mean, the door is swinging shut now. <laughs> I'm not picking on them, I, but I've been in those churches before. <laughs> don't point, don't look at the pastor. <laughs> I'm never getting invited back. We're here because we wanted to come into a place where we knew there was a God who could look down and say, there you are. There you are. I've been waiting for you to come. I've been waiting for you to walk into my house so I could touch you. You know what's so beautiful being about being in his house? Because the Bible says that he will not withhold any good thing. And he's got it all in his house. And so as we stand, I don't know how you normally close, but I'm just going to tell you the, this area here in the front's open. For whatever you need. You're here. He's here. And touching Jesus. Is all. That matters. That's all. That matters. So this morning. What do you need? Job said, oh, that I might find him. That I could plead my cause. I've looked in front. I've looked behind. I've looked to the left. I've looked to the right. I couldn't find him. But he knows the way that I take. He knew you were going to be here. He said, I'm making a divine appointment with them. So this morning, it wasn't by chance. It was by plan. It may not have been yours, but it was his. He said, I, I need to touch them. You see what's, what's so beautiful? It's the reason he turned it wasn't just because he felt the desperation in her spirit but there's something about when he senses your need he says I've got to touch them it's not just that I need to touch him it's that he's saying I've got to touch them I've got to touch them as 
we begin to sing, we begin to worship. Job said, there's one thing that he has purpose for me. What's the one thing that you need God to do for you today? Why don't you take that one thing and your faith and let's bring it to Him and let Him touch and let Him move and let Him make a difference.